has been an undercurrent flowing throughout the entire book of James that if we have been unaware of its movement up until this point, it now grabs our ankles and fully submerges us into the water. James has already taught that following Jesus demands action. He writes, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And later, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And later, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And yet again, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. There has also been consistent encouragement to avoid revenge, to avoid seeking to punish those who are exploiting the community, those who are enjoying the benefits of economic injustice. James says, nope, absolutely not. We do not do this. Your conduct is of the utmost importance here. Don't give in to the temptation to respond inappropriately, he says. Don't resort to violence. Don't even speak in ways that are defamatory to your oppressors. And now, in what is probably the most discussed and in some ways the most difficult passage in the book, James clarifies his teaching in simplistic terms. Faith without deeds, without works, is useless. In other words, James argues very clearly and very forcefully that it is impossible to be a person of faith if a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food and you simply say to them, go in peace and keep warm and well fed, but you don't do anything about their physical needs. What good is that? What is that sort of faith worth in the world? What or who does it benefit? Can this sort of faith save anyone? The rhetorical structure of this passage is called a diatribe, meaning James has invented a hypothetical interlocutor. Woo, that's fancy. You didn't know you were signing up for that today. He's invented this hypothetical conversation partner that he can prop up and systematically dismantle. This person seems to think that it's possible to have faith with no action. That is to believe the right things without living them out in the real world. In my paraphrase of this passage, James is saying, you believe that there is one God? Great. Who cares? This line, you believe there is one God, is a thinly veiled reference to what is called the Shema. We've talked about this a handful of times in this sermon series alone, but it takes us back to the book of Deuteronomy, this, uh, this creedal statement, if you will. It's, it's an important Jewish confession that Torah-observant Jews would have recited at least three times a day and perhaps even every time they enter their homes. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Lest we think, well, that's the Old Testament. These Jewish Christians, they weren't bound by this belief. Remember, this confession was not abandoned by Jewish Christians. It wasn't abandoned when Jesus showed up. It wasn't abandoned after his death and his resurrection. In fact, Jesus himself affirms the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He affirms this and he even adds to it. 
in this story that's told in a handful of Gospels, I believe. Um, this retelling is from the book of Mark. It says that one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? You know how this goes. Jesus responds, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the beginning line of the Shema. Side note, the reason why it's called the Shema is because that first verb, hear or listen in Hebrew, is pronounced Shema. That line continues on to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then Jesus adds the second. This is not the Shema. This is coming from the book of Leviticus. This is not unique to Jesus. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment, Jesus says, greater than these. So when James brings up the Shema, he's not attacking it. His, his remarks are focused instead on this fact. It doesn't matter if you believe the creed. It doesn't matter if you recite the Shema. It doesn't matter if every time you go in and out of your household, you are saying this either silently or out loud to yourself. Even, James says, even the demons believe the Shema. The, the demons, however, might have a leg up on the audience that James is addressing because at least the demons respond in some way. It says that they shudder. For James, it is not about what you believe. The demons believe the same things that we do. He says faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's, it's dead. It's useless. And then, in a typical Jewish move, James goes on to cite certain examples from the Old Testament to prove his point. He cites Abraham, and a sort of unique example, he cites Rahab, who, if you're unaware of her story, she shows up in Joshua chapter 2. She gives lodging to the spies that are sent out by Joshua uh, to look at the land of, of Jericho and, and sort of see what they're up against. And Rahab, who is a Canaanite, provides shelter for these people, protects them, and also makes a confession of faith, which eventually uh, leads to her salvation, not in a spiritual sense, but in a, very, uh, in a very practical sense. She and the people in her household are saved from the destruction that happens in, in Jericho. And James is using both of these figures who he believes demonstrate that their faith was active, that it was put to the test and it succeeded by what it did. What these people demonstrate, it was not a faith plus works. This is how we think about things. We think about things in terms of we are saved by faith, not by works. This is sort of Pauline language, which is why James and Paul are seemingly, seemingly, I should say, at odds. It's not even, for James, a faith that is demonstrated by works. He's not saying that faith is the starting point. He's not clarifying what scholars refer to as, you ready for this? This is fancy, as the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. He's not giving us, you must believe, and then you are regenerated, and then this happens, and then that. It's not, he's, he's not sketching out the theoretical order in which one is saved, James is, is clarifying what faith is. Abraham and Rahab, they offer an example of a working faith. And for James, that's the only kind of faith that is real. It's the only kind of faith that saves. Now, here's the problem 
with this. That's not what the church is known for, at least not at large. Much like the hypothetical interlocutor that James is sparring with, that James has created to make his point, we've turned this discussion into an either-or. Somebody has faith and somebody else has deeds. It's a difference between the gospel and the social gospel that was uh, in in prominence back in the, the 1920s or so when people began to say, it can't just be what we believe. We have to do these things. And then they sort of cashed in one for the other. I think it's fair to say that in many instances, we have concluded that the person with faith the person with the right set of beliefs, the right statement of faith, the person who can pass the theology test, that person is in the clear. That person is doing what God wants them to do because they can check all the right boxes. We have turned this into an intellectual faith that's about right answers and right theology. In fact, where our actions demonstrate inconvenient truths about the quality of our faith, we effectively reduce the importance of works altogether because we are saved by faith, not by works. In other words, we privilege what I might be inclined to say, again, as is a bad reading of Paul. We privilege that when he says, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's For us, it's faith, not works. We can't do anything to save ourselves. It's only a gift. And all of this is true because of Jesus. But many of us have used this line of thought not to inspire our total life transformation, but rather to grant us assurance that we'll be okay even if we choose faith overworks. For many of us, it's not both and, not really. Faith is the thing that wins. The right answers win. The right beliefs win. Uh, A few weeks ago now, we uh, started a book conversation on Love Matters More, subtitle, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus by a friend of ours named Jared Bias. It's a great book. We've uh, actually read through almost the entire uh, book at this point, so uh, it's well worth your time. You should pick it up. He introduces the book, though, with a couple of anecdotes, and one, I think, helps to bring this point across. He retells a story about how when he was serving as a pastor at a large church, he was one of five ministers on staff, and one of the things that he did when he was not preaching on Sunday mornings was uh, this course that he entitled uh, a skeptics class, and it was for skeptics only. No Christian people were allowed in this class. It was there so that people would have a safe space to to be uh, who were there to support their significant others or their family members or uh, just, just to be at church with their family, but they didn't necessarily believe the same things which actually says a lot about the character of these people to continue to be involved in a church community even without bringing that same uh, faith piece to to the table. But anyway, Jared had this class for skeptics, and one day there was a woman named Carol who was in the class, and she was just just weeping. 
And finally, they, they sort of asked the right questions and got her to start speaking. And she said that she was beginning to have a lot of questions about her faith, questions about evolution, questions about LGBTQ inclusion, questions about why bad things happen to good people. And in light of that, and in light of her voicing these things to her Christian family members, they began to doubt Carol's salvation. They even said that she might not be a Christian anymore, which led her to go to the skeptics class and sit near the front and begin crying in the midst of their weekly meeting. And perhaps you have similar stories in your life where a friend or a family member cautioned you about believing something because if you did, you might be at risk of losing your faith. Perhaps those stories are are fresh in our specific moment in time, we're living in such a polarized moment, it's very possible that you and your family have broken ties over things like who you're voting for or who you want to be on the Supreme Court bench or how your thinking has changed over the last six, seven, eight months by what we have seen or what we have experienced Now, I want to be careful in how I describe this because I don't want the takeaway from this talk to be that I expect or even desire for all of us to be in perfect alignment, whether that be politically or socially or theologically. That is not my goal. In fact, one of the beautiful things about TRP and our community has always been our attempt to respect one another, to value one another, even when the inevitable happens, even when some of you heathens disagree with me. Now, that's a joke. We can cue the laugh track here. But as a self-proclaimed professional Christian, I've put a lot of time into considering my readings of the Bible and what I believe about Jesus and the faith. And I don't take my responsibility as a minister flippantly, which is why I've devoted my entire life to the pursuit of Jesus at an intellectual level, to reading the books, to going to seminary, to getting a PhD, to all of these things that I think are training me to understand our sacred text. But I recognize that time alone and and effort added in, that doesn't necessarily correlate to accuracy. I give you the best of what I have each week. I bring that to the table. But it's very possible. It's probable. It's absolutely certain that I'm wrong at at moments, perhaps a lot of them. So don't take the following examples of, as anything other than road marks on my own personal journey, okay? But as a minister, I certainly know what it's like to have my faith judged by others, and I know what it's like to be found wanting in their eyes, Like Carol's family, many have expressed concerns over my salvation at different times. But here's the weird thing. It has never been because I have walked by someone in need and said, go in peace, be warm and well fed, and then didn't do anything beyond that to help. It's usually differences in intellectual pursuits, most notably in interpreting the Bible. I am called into question for how I read Genesis 1 through 3, or how I read the book of Jonah, or how I interpret Paul's letters. And these are all really important things. I'm not going to deny that. That's why I've dedicated so much of my own time and energy 
and prayer into figuring out where I land on a lot of these issues. I know they're important for you. They're important for me. The Bible is not something to be diminished. Uh, I have I have put a lot of effort into understanding what it means. But when we effectively write someone who loves and serves Jesus out of the family because they think differently than we do on a biblical or social or theological issue, I think that we've jumped the shark here. Interestingly enough, we are much more reticent to assess how our own faith is working itself out in actual practice. And we're seemingly much more willing to police other people's proposed bad readings of the Bible or whatever else we have made the litmus test for who is in and who is out. I think if we focused on the former, namely on embodying a working faith, which for James is a faith that that works itself out in love, then we would be less ridiculous on Facebook. We would make more of a positive impact in the world. We would stop well-wishing, or since this might be more appropriate, we would stop offering our thoughts and prayers, and perhaps we would work together to live out our calling. This is not to say that thoughts and prayers are bad, but in isolation, on their own, they aren't the, the full scale of what we are called to do. If we focused on the former on living out this faith, we would sacrifice, we would take risks for people, we'd be less concerned with our inward piety and more concerned with how our inward acts of piety, such as prayer and meditation and reading the Bible, how they become the impetus for our faithful action in the world around us. In other words, if we focus on living this out, we will make more of a difference for Jesus. And we will live in a more consistent way that Jesus is calling us to live. If we take Paul at what he's saying, that faith without works is dead, it's useless, then we should, we should attempt to take the faith that we have and to live it out into the world. TRP, we should think all of the thoughts. We should read all of the books. We should grow in our understanding of the God that we serve. We should dig into the original context. We should nerd out. Let's not forsake the faith for our dutiful action. But when we talk about faith, let's always, always, always come back to this. Ours must be a faith with evidence in the world. It must be a faith that acts. It must be a faith that loves. It must be a faith that isn't useless. <laughs>